The We're LCC podcast is a monthly show that comes out on the 9th of every month. But if you hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcast app, you'll never need to remember that because the show will automatically be there. So go ahead and hit the subscribe or follow button on your podcast app now. We are LCC, a podcast emanating from the halls of Lower Canada College on Royal Avenue in Montreal. Here's alumni officer Christine Jones. Welcome to the We Are LCC podcast. I'm Christine Jones, your host, alum, parent, and the school's alumni officer. Join us now for a discussion on politics and global issues with Roger Hilton from the class of 2004, a global affairs and defense analyst for Globesec based in Bratislava, Slovakia, and our special guest, co-host, and head of school, Chris Shannon, who among many educational pursuits holds a master's in international affairs from the University of Geneva. This in-depth discussion has a focus on Canada's role in a changing world of security and alliances. So I thank and welcome you both for being here. So Roger, can you give us a bit of your background since your time at LCC and how you came into your role and what you're doing today? Uh, well, to begin with, for the LCC community, it's great to be back. Uh, Mr. Shannon, I feel as if I'm on the Munich Security Conference with you co-hosting, so that's wonderful. Uh, time certainly flies. Just to sort of give you the, the down and easy version of it. Uh, basically, I had always been fascinated with IR, and we'll touch on sort of the LCC influence on that uh, in some of the other subjects. But essentially, um, I went to Moscow in 2013 for a summer course at MGIMO, uh, which is the Russian Foreign Affairs finishing school. Uh, and my roommate at the time was Japanese, uh, told me about uh, this master's program in Vienna. I ended up working as a lobbyist uh, when I got back from Moscow. But essentially, I worked for a year in 2014, which was a pivotal year in international relations because it was the first time that borders had been changed by force with Russia annexing Crimea. And then, you know, between meetings, uh, I submitted my application to the Diplomatic Academy of Vienna. Uh, only grad school I, I submitted any application to, which coincidentally was also the 200th anniversary of the Congress of Vienna, which is for history buffs, a very seminal moment. Moved to Vienna in 2014, uh, did grad school for two years and have now been working at Globesec, which is an international think tank based in Bratislava, focusing mainly on international security, European Union politics uh, and global affairs. Okay, well, that's great. And with that as an introduction, I think I'll pass it on to you, uh, Mr. Shannon, to continue for, uh, with the conversation with Roger. Thanks, KJ. And Roger, it's great that we could be together and have this conversation. And it, it is indeed a conversation. It's interesting because my background also um, studied international affairs, but uh, as we, we mentioned previously, a generation apart in some ways. And uh, when I was studying at the University of Geneva, at the graduate school there uh, in the early 1980s, it was still the Cold War. Uh, and subsequent to that, we saw the windup of the Cold War. We saw the peace dividend that with the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early 90s, it was supposed to be a peace dividend. There was talk about a unipolar world with one major superpower. There was a famous article by Francis Fukuyama talking about the end of history and that indeed uh, that competition between the superpowers had come to an end and the world was going to be peaceful and wonderful. So that said, the world has shifted uh, a lot in recent years. And I think certainly in the time that you've been doing your work with the think tank. So I'd like you just to give us a little bit of an overview of some of the uh, important elements of the state of the world and how you, you see it changing right now. 
You know, it's a great question, Mr. Shannon. And obviously, uh, you know, as we record this sort of on the almost on the on the anniversary of Henry Kissinger, who just passed away at 100 years old, you know, you might be a little bit older than me and you've lived through the Cold War. And like Henry Kissinger and like yourself, I mean, each time period is very unique in terms of the challenges and difficulties that both Canada, the West and other nations face. But, you know, now being based in Europe for almost 10 years, it is really remarkable for me to sort of take a look back and see just how dynamic uh, and how complicated international relations really are. Um, a couple of things that really stand out for me at the moment is, first off, sort of the overarching principle of the interconnectedness of security. When you were in the cold, you know, when you were studying during the Cold War, there was West Germany and East Germany and alliances and enemies were very clear. Enemies were wore uniforms and you knew who was the good guy and who was the bad guy. And now more than ever, it's very blurred about who's a good guy uh, and who's a bad guy. The way in which nations conduct relations with each other is often very different. There's been a lot of talk now about sort of the monopoly of the West uh, on international relations and how that started to recede. And the way I look at it is a sort of a la carte diplomacy, where during the Cold War, you had sort of communism versus capitalism and the non-aligned movement. But now more than ever, you have so many different countries developing economies in Africa, South America, who are really asserting their own agency, which is a phenomenon that is relatively new for policy policymakers dealing in international affairs. For all of our listeners, uh, one thing that really stood out for me recently at the APAC summit in San Francisco, which brought Asian uh, Pacific nations to San Francisco, was the slogan, do not make us choose which is the way in which sort of nations don't want to be any more put in boxes of either you're with America or you're with China. So I think adequate diplomacy, the interconnectedness of security are two of the major takeaways. And I think the overarching thing for me who's approaching their 40s, starting a family hopefully soon, is obviously the driving challenge of climate security uh, and climate change and everything it and everything that it encompasses, which we can get to a little bit later. Uh, and then finally, sort of just the unbelievable transformative power of technology, um, not just sort of AI, but quantum computing and the possibilities that it can provide for nations and non-state actors, both uh, in policy and in actual attacks themselves. That's a lot to try and process. So let me just start by saying that um, there's obviously a lot of concern in the West uh, about a lot of regimes that seem to be moving in the direction of being uh, autocratic, more and more autocratic. We're seeing the rise of the strongman. Do you want to comment a little bit on that in terms of the shifts that we're witnessing? Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's a phenomenon, Mr. Shannon, that it's not isolated to, let's say, the developing world. Everybody goes back to the, I believe it's the 2008 speech of Vladimir Putin in Munich talking about the collapse of communism being the, you know, the single greatest geo geopolitical catastrophe of the year. So I think to a certain degree, you had these strong men who, at least on the surface, were trying to get along with the West. And for, for a variety of reasons, that has really passed. Uh, Xi Jinping, sort of who's really in the spotlight now of international relations, is flexing his muscle, um, has abolished term limits for the the president, you know, for the chairman of the Communist Party. But for all of our listeners, what's much more concerning for me is not sort of its contagion effect uh, in countries outside of the West, but how it's starting to install itself and with enough examples already in the West. 
I'm coming to you live today from Vienna, but I work in Bratislava, and there are just a host of examples in Central and Eastern Europe, and even in the United States, where a combination of toxic disinformation, a lack of critical thinking is sort of providing these autocrats or or want to be autocrats a platform for growing. So while I think it's important to acknowledge the risk, I don't also want to over-exaggerate it and say it's a domino effect that will soon happen. But undoubtedly, it's something that is very concerning, um, you know, for people in the West and abroad when it comes to international rules and human rights. So I was listening to an interview with the recent Nobel Peace Prize winner from Philippines, who is a journalist and was talking about how her biggest concern is that truth isn't landing in the inboxes in enough people. And you referred a a moment ago to the tech issue and that people are not necessarily getting the truth, that regimes are coming to power because they've been extraordinarily successful in being able to manipulate information. And I guess that uh, we're actually recording this in December, but in, in as we move into the new year, 2024, I've read that there's something like 90 elections slated to happen in the coming year. And so that means that we may see some extraordinary change. And of course, there's the American election coming up in November. So do you want to t- talk about tech and the elections that are on the landscape? Yeah, sure. Huge issues. And obviously, uh, the the Nobel Prize laureate you're referring to for all of the listeners, um, before the sort of change in government in Manila in the Philippines, uh, President Duterte had sort of authorized this extrajudicial policy of allowing civilians throughout the Philippines to kill drug uh, to kill drug lords or anybody they deemed a threat, which inevitably brought in journalists. So just for a little bit of reference for everyone, being a journalist these days, not just in the Philippines, whether it's in Russia uh, or even in Europe is a tricky issue. One thing I just I thought I'd like like to get your take on, Mr. Shannon, is you, the journalist in question said that you know in, the truth is not landing in the inbox enough of people. But you know, from my perspective, I think the problem is that people aren't going out of their way enough to look for the truth. We're really in a, in a bad way when you had the you know the spokesperson for the president of the United States under the Trump administration, Sean Spicer, saying or or Kellyanne Conway saying uh, we presented alternative facts. So. I mean, tech is part of it, but as I mentioned in my intro, I'm very concerned about the inability of of the younger generation to be critical thinking, to challenge what's being promoted, and just to accept the norm. And the interconnectedness or the linkage with technology is that now more than ever, people who might have been on the on the extreme spectrum of positions, they're now able to self-organize, they're able to sort of reinforce their own positions and live in their own bubble. And as we sort of saw in the insurrection on the Capitol on January 6th in the U.S., people now are so tribal in the way they look at their positions and policies. It's very binary. It's either you're with me or against me. And I think until we're able to bridge that divide, whether it's urban, rural, uh, or even class to a certain degree, we're in for a long haul in terms of, you know, what are acceptable truths and the fact that especially in the West or any country, that we need to work together to make success instead of sort of working individually in our own silos. I think, first of all, it's important to give young people credit. So rather than thinking these are issues that they can't handle, uh, we take the view at LCC, and it it would have been interesting for you to be a student today because we're focused very much on uh, the world. Uh, We have the IB curriculum from grade 7 through to grade 12, which is very focused on, on a global perspective at every level. Uh, and we, 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 if you saw our advertising, you'd notice that we, we call ourselves Montreal's leading global school. We want to make sure that our, our students have their eyes on the world and that, as you said, critical thinking is at the base of what we need to teach them. Uh, 
that they should not simply receive information and buy it all. They have to be critical of the information that's coming their way. And we have to let them practice that, practice that, practice that. We offer something now called the Certificate in Sustainable Global Leadership for students graduating grade 11. Uh, and that requires them to have done a whole host of, uh, of things within the school and, and BIB students. But whether it's an exchange or a leadership opportunity, but critical thinking is at the base of all of this. The students who are in that particular program uh, spend a year having dialogue outside of the classroom, outside of their actual courses on global issues and, and looking at bias, looking at the media, looking at um, understanding the issues in greater depth. So I think it's a, it, you're quite correct. It's imperative on schools, I think, to raise the bar because existing curricula in schools and as you know, in Canada, it's provincial, uh, so it's different in every single province. But if schools do not step it up to help kids see the world and take interest in the world, then I would agree with you, then we're in trouble. Uh, so w creating global citizens is an active thing on the part of schools. We're involved in it. And uh, I don't know, what's your message to kids? First off, I'm just so reassured to sort of hear that LCC is at the forefront of it. It doesn't really come as a surprise, but, you know, uh, as Robert Mueller said, the special counsel with the Trump, uh, you know, prosecuting Trump, and I think it's a, from the Old Testament, with great value comes great expectations. So, you know, the two things I would say to students at LCC is you're really sort of given, it is such an unbelievable privilege uh, and ability that you're able to do your high school at LCC. And it's something that only really hits you so much later on whether it's, you know, the close friends, which you still keep, uh, or, you know, for instance, that like my best friends are, are still uh, all LCC graduates. And it's something that just permeates your entire adult and professional life. And as I said, in the moment, to all the kids listening, you're probably sleeping on the desk. Uh, you're waiting for gym class to start. Uh, I don't know if you're on TikTok or Instagram, but you're, you're looking at the next story or something like that. But yeah, so I mean, I think it's important that when you're receiving this information, it's important to also pass it on. Talk to people who you don't agree with. Uh, there's nothing wrong with having a policy issue or a policy debate as long as it's civil. And, you know, it's not about trying to change that person's opinion, but it's about sort of informing yours and maybe changing yours. And the other big piece of advice I have, having lived in Estonia, Georgia, Greece, uh, obviously Slovakia and Austria and Moscow for a little bit, is there's really no substitute for field experience, where in my perspective, you know, you can learn so much from a society or a culture taking a bus watching people at the grocery markets, um, seeing people out for supper. So getting out of your comfort zone is something that I really cannot stress enough. And it's something that I try to do on a daily, weekly basis to really see what you're made of and do it. So, you know, getting out of your comfort zone is the greatest way to sort of develop professionally and also push the limits of what you're capable of. Well, that's a really important message. And it's something that, you know, we've been a member of this organization called The Round Square, 250 odd schools from around the world who uh, promote active learning and that we believe that uh, exposure to global perspectives is important, but you, you really have to do it uh, in an active way. And we got to a point a few years ago, we had between 15 and 20 students every year going on exchange. And that number came down because of COVID and we're rebuilding that again. And we're going to be seeing students coming back from Colombia this year. We had a student in South Africa, a student was here in the fall from South Africa. But we need to make sure that those opportunities for kids to get out of the Canadian bubble of privilege is important for them to understand the challenges of the world and to develop a sense of empathy. So that goes back to the challenges and the threats. Uh, and let's talk a little bit about the threats of global stability. Can you comment on that a bit? Oh, I don't, I don't know where to start on that. Um, you know, as I sort of said in my intro, 
as before we got on air, there's such a contrast in all of the different threats that are going on. The way I look at it, as I said, I mean, as, as a reference point for everyone, the way that, you know, the National Security Council or, you know, people at the Privy Council in Ottawa look at it, security has never been more interconnected or inter- interdependent in the way everything uh, is linked up. The amount of players dealing with international security has never been higher. You know, the private sector, just as an example for all of our listeners, sort of with Elon Musk and Starlink satellites playing an unbelievable important role providing connectivity to Ukraine forces against Russia or, you know, Microsoft uh, and other private sector companies helping them out uh, on cyber, sort of on cyber defense. Um, The ability for nations like North Korea to wage this plausible deniability attack, whether it's through ransomware, ransomware, you know, transnational organized crimes, non-state actors, there it is such a complicated and powder cake filled moment sort of situation at the time that really doesn't look as if it's starting to recede in any way. As I said earlier, Mr. Shannon, I mean, you have sort of your traditional hard and soft security threats um, with tech being the large one. But the two, at least that I'm really seeing much more prominently, especially in Central and Eastern Europe, is sort of how geoeconomics is starting to trump geopolitics. And again, in most cases, when a reform is made, there has to be a shock to the system. And I think everybody, when the pandemic when the pandemic hit, was really caught off guard about sort of supply chains and you know how far does it go down and where are masks coming from. So all of a sudden, big questions about sort of how secure are supply chains? The you know foreign direct investment that Canada is taking in the oil sands from you know from China, for instance, is that corrupt? Is that something we should be doing? IP theft, you know, Canada is one of the leading countries in research and development. So that's something that I think um, is really on the rise. Uh, And then finally, of course, uh, sort of the securitization of the economy. You've seen sort of now this, I don't want to say it's a Cold War because the Cold War is about ideology and what China and the United States are doing is not about ideology, but the securitization of the economy. Uh, you know, the American Chips Act restricting uh, microprocessors for China and then China responding with restricting exports on rare earth minerals like graphite is all moving at the same time. While you have the most devastating, you know, the most devastating threat of climate security is a force multiplier that impacts public health, operational readiness of militaries and civilian forces, food security, driving migration. Uh, on top of technology, which is not regulated and is still very much a living organism in terms of what's possible. So when taken together, Mr. Shannon, I mean, I don't envy the policymakers, whether it's at Foggy Bottom in Washington uh, or in NATO's policy planning unit, who have to come up with responses and over the horizon foresight about dealing with these issues at the moment. So as we speak, the COP conference is on uh, and the, the world has gathered to talk about climate change and the global environmental challenges. Any thoughts on that right now? At this point, do you think that there's there's the possibility? Is it a talk shop or are there real results coming out of that? Oh, I mean, it's like I could sort of being in Europe now for 10 years be a little bit more pessimistic, but I'll, I'll pivot back to being Canadian and optimistic. I think the thing that's encouraging for me, at least, is that the civil society is still very motivated to want to make a difference. Um, I don't necessarily agree with some of the more extreme tactics that protesters are taking, uh, you know, just as an example, earlier in the week in Austria, um, people glued their hands to the the highway outside of Vienna, which required a huge amount of work to sort of remove them. So in some respects, like the, in some respects, those types of actions, I think are detrimental to trying to get more, I don't want to say conservative, but more 
less inclined people on climate change to get involved in it. Obviously, there's been some reports coming out about how Dubai, who's hosting it, had already lined up uh, quite a few oil deals. So it's still a little bit early to say if it's a talk shop or not. But I think the one issue that I think I'm a bit concerned about, you know, for somebody at LCC right now who's in grade two or three is they're really hoping, as you know, that they say that we can science our way out of this problem. And it's no longer just about, you know, carbon capture. It's about removing carbon from the atmosphere now or the slow pace of, you know, retrofitting buildings uh, and making more adaptation to cities. So, you know, I think as long as uh, the public, you know, the public has this very strong motivation to get involved in the youth. And, you know, it's one of the major issues now on university campuses about what they're most concerned about and how people respond to it. I think there is hope for it. But I mean, unfortunately, despite the litany of, of natural disasters that have occurred here in Europe with, you know, Greece and Turkey being on fire or Italy, floods in the Rhineland in Germany uh, or in southern Austria or even what's taking place in, in, in Canada. Unfortunately, I still think something even more devastating will have to occur for people to get serious about it, because at the end of the day, paying out dividends and other interests like that still for the moment, unfortunately, trump the policy of society, I think. And I think it's interesting because one of the challenges for us in education is that the vast issues of climate change, which are so large, are sometimes larger than I think an adolescent mind can embrace and sort of say that I can have an impact. Uh, so there are some who are concerned about adolescent uh, climate anxiety. And our perspective on this is, first of all, we're, we're lucky, as you said, to live in a country with a beautiful, large environment with a relatively small population, clean water, et cetera, and services. So there isn't the, the motivation if you're living in downtown Delhi, for example, where you can't even go to school because the air pollution is so bad. The awareness level is a little bit different with our students. But we certainly want our students to embrace environmental causes and realize that they can make small but effective changes daily and realize that that's, that's how change happens because it starts at home, right? So we've seen examples of that. So I'll turn then, if we can, to Canada and Maybe you could make a comment on Canada's changing role in the world. And, and we talked about my time in terms of studying, and it looks like Canada's role is shifting and changing. Could you make a comment about Canada's role in the world today? Yeah, well, just if I could just give a, a two-finger response. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think, again, for all of the students, even like, you know, with my working with my wife here, small changes do make a big difference. Uh, and I really, really encourage everyone to be as sustainable as possible. Uh, you know, it's an inconvenience to be bringing a to-go coffee mug everywhere with you or to sort of be doing compost more. But I mean, I think it's something that's contagious. Uh, and I really sort of advocate for us on, on, the, on the highest level about, you know, it being a global common, not just in Canada, but everywhere. And just, you know, again, for our listeners, it's interesting that you brought up uh, Delhi, Mr. Shannon, is obviously the big struggle right now on the negotiation front is you have a lot of emerging economies who are claiming that they're not necessarily so open to adhering to stronger rules when it comes to polluting energy sources like coal, because they're just entering their peak industrialization phase. And I think it's an important question for students to be asking that for, you know, an extended period you know, Western Europe, countries like uh, Australia, Canada, United States, they were by far some of the largest emitters uh, of carbon during their industrialized period. So it's it's very interesting food for thought about what responsibility the West bears in terms of offsetting or compensating those countries to be more uh, open to climate change. So yeah, a bit of a bit of a deviant on that one, but I think it's something for the students to be asking about it, especially with nations being eroded away. 
it's interesting because I think despite all of our fresh air and space, we've never ever as a nation met our climate targets. And so talk has been a bit cheap for us as Canadians. And, and uh, at a certain level, it's about getting young people to be aware of that and to consider what can they do to, to improve that record, despite a lot of fresh air outside. Yeah, I mean, before we just go back to sort of Canada's place in the world, I mean, just, you know, some some good pub, uh, some good pub quiz facts. I mean, it's astounding when you think, Mr. Shannon, that I don't know if it was last year or two years ago, that there was more Canadian forces deployed within Canada helping in emergency natural disaster responses than they were posted abroad in Latvia, where Canada runs a battle group um, or on any other missions abroad. So I think it just shows you the scope from a security standpoint about what is what is at stake here. And, you know, especially with Canada's landscape, which is pristine, and it really is such a privilege, access to clean water. Um, it's something that we have to constantly keep working at when you contrast it with other people, you know, in South America or in Africa and the Sahel who don't have access, as you said, to clean water or even clean sanitation. So, I mean, it's just great that LCC is really staying on top about it and even more so than sort of getting outside of your comfort zone. I mean, pushing that agenda with your grandparents or that uncle who you don't agree with about why it's important about taking the bus more instead of taking your car are all really, really important issues. When it comes to Canada's role in the world, it's also great to get your perspective as somebody who's just a bit older. But obviously, from my perspective, I think Canada has kind of lost its credibility, the way in which the world has changed. A couple of things that just stand out immediately is sort of Canada has been so fortunate to be bordered by the United States in terms of sort of the security benefits that that, is, that 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 affords it, the trade that happens on it. But the lesson for for Canadians and for the people listening is incidents and, you know, conflicts that happen abroad, everything now more than ever really does impact Canada that can spread. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, you know, both under the conservative and the liberal government, you know, both the 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 the, the diplomacy of Canada, as well as sort of the, the military posture of Canada has really is no longer fit for purpose. And, you know, two examples that really stand out are both sort of uh, under Trudeau and under Harper, Canada's inability to secure the UN Security Council seat, which I think was unthinkable if you had this idea that Canada was always considered an honest broker, did lots of peacekeeping but has really fallen out of line sort of developing countries now who just sort of think they pay us lip service when the Raptors GM comes to Africa to sort of court votes before uh, the big vote in New York. Part of it is, is the public diplomacy. And then the other one that is really astounding when you consider all of the threats, whether they're hard, soft, is the omission of Canada from AUKUS, um, which was the single largest piece of technology transfer of the United States to Australia. Uh, in helping them provide in making nuclear submarines. And I think that's important for our listeners because it shows that, you know, despite Canada being in NATO and in NORAD and sort of bilateral trade between the United States and Canada being in excess of $3 billion, they didn't think that Canada was worthy of, of this advanced technology transfer. So I think those two sort of are major uh, red lights um, that Canada has been too slow to to react to. I'm a bit encouraged, Mr. Shannon, not so much sort of in the past documents where Canada's defense policy was outlined with this document called Strong, Secure and Engaged. But more recently, at least I think Canada is getting a little bit more with it with the release of their Indo-Pacific strategy that's looking to work more with partners in Asia, uh, specifically South Korea. And again, sort of Melanie Jolie, Canada's foreign minister, gave um, a brutally honest club at the Economic Club of Canada, where she just really said sort of, 
the world is fracturing at the moment and we can't take our, our current security for liber- you know, for granted. So, and I quote, our world is marked by geopolitical turbulence, unpredictability and uncertainty. So despite sort of the red lights flashing for a while, you know, I don't speak for the government at all, obviously, but I do think Canada has been a bit slow to respond to all of the issues at hand. And my one takeaway is that, you know, whether it's conservative, NDP or the liberals, they all need to put aside partisan politics and get foreign affairs or at least security together because Canada being able to be a, a credible partner is so unbelievably important for a variety of reasons um, as the world sort of devolves in this current episode. There are those who are critics out there who are saying that one of the problems for Canada is that we are bouncing from issue to issue without a central focus and that it is unclear what our actual f- key elements, like let's say the three point, the three key points of our foreign policy are, whereas back in the day it was a little bit easier to understand uh, in the Cold War era and the immediate time thereafter. So, as you said, I think that there's a, a military term in the United States, VUCA, that uh, you prepare soldiers t- to fight and to live in a world that is, that is VUCA. It's volatile, it's uncertain, it's complex, and it's ambiguous. And in fact, maybe that's something we should be preparing all of our students for, that there is, there is certainly that kind of complexity in the world that kids just have to realize is become a new norm. And it's not going to get softer and the landing won't be easier for them because they've done their homework. So navigating complexity, I think, is also part of the critical thinking piece. So for Canada, do you think there's anything in particular that we should focus on to develop a foreign policy or a reputation which is stronger? Absolutely. I mean, when it comes to sort of the statecraft of Canada, of course, I mean, there's enough white papers out there, you know, from Ottawa that outline sort of the priorities of the government in Ottawa. And a lot of them are not necessarily paying lip service, but I mean, they're obvious things like upholding the international rules-based order, supporting human rights where possible, uh, you know, most importantly, defending Canadian territorial sovereignty. But again, just for all of the listeners, I mean, it's not to say in this current moment that Canada has abandoned those elements of their foreign policy, but the expectations about, you know, what Canada should look for in terms of foreign policy are so low, as well as with like-minded nations, because of the contagion uh, of security threats that are going around where before when there was a modicum of stability or at least predictability, you could sort of work on improving those issues. But it really just seems, you know, when you look at somebody like Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, he's going from one crisis to the next nonstop. Uh, And it's not just in Europe with Ukraine um, or sort of the the lingering issue in the Balkans uh, and obviously with what's going on in Israel. But, you know, things that just don't get reported, uh, you know, sort of Congo and Rwanda, Ethiopia and Eritrea, um, you know, refugees and transnational organized crime in South America. So as, you know, Melanie Jolie said in her speech, I mean, we're just trying to sort of keep this stability to a certain degree so that it really doesn't expand out because obviously we're all, we're over a hundred years from the first world war. And for myself and for students now at LCC, it seems inconceivable that the world would ever go to war again on such a, a grand scale, but with so many pockets of insecurity it begs the question about what does Canada want to accomplish and how they can accomplish it. So I think if I were to sort of say the messages that I think I want to convey to the listeners for Canada's role in the world, Mr. Shannon, it's maybe four or five points. I mean, one is that Canada itself is not tough enough. It's not well resourced enough to sort of make it through this dangerous period in global affairs 
which puts an even heavier emphasis on, you know, the alliances that are so indispensable to, to Ottawa's, you know, pushing of its priorities and its policies. But at the same time, Canada has to be equal to its allies and it has to be credible. And that means sort of investing in capabilities and being someone that they can count on. As an example for everyone, I mean, obviously, uh, when China engaged in this hostage diplomacy of the two Michaels, you know, organizations like NATO, the G7, the EU, G20 to a lesser degree are all sort of vehicles that sort of push Canada's message and give it a little bit of heft. Even sort of now with what's still going on in terms of the alleged assassination uh, of a Canadian citizen in British Columbia that might or might not have been um, sort of under the auspice of the Indian government. So Canada needs to sort of get its act together and be a credible partner for alliances. We talked about sort of students being part of national security. And I really firmly believe that sort of Canada needs to build out a much more thick and heavy national security culture, you know, a way of thinking, not just from people in Ottawa, but from everybody inside the country, that it really needs to be treated as a holistic process that is both bottom up uh, and top to bottom, that looks to generate resiliency. And most importantly, it requires a constantly evolving strategic culture, because what works for one year is not necessarily applicable for the year afterwards. And of course, that's a very heavy uh, task for, you know, educators and professors to sort of undertake. But everybody has to play a role in sort of, you know, this of Canada being strong together, 40 million across of it. As I said, I mean, conflicts and violent episodes far away, they matter for Canada. Uh, and geographical isolation is no longer sustainable as a strategy. So I think we need to abandon that principle that just because we're next to the United States, nothing bad will happen. You know, asymmetric warfare, whether it's terrorism, compromise of critical infrastructure, supply chains, uh, IP theft, Canada is a soft and easy target as we've seen through the past. Uh, and then the last one sort of that stands out is, you know, with the daunting prospect, speaking for myself alone, of uh, a potential second Trump administration, is that, you know, Ottawa shouldn't abuse its security relationship with the USA. People have been calling on Canada for so long to hit the 2% spending, uh, which is a NATO guideline, not as a uh, ceiling, but as a floor. So I think, as I said, I mean, you have to invest in capabilities to be taken seriously. Maybe, KJ, you'd, you'd like to just weigh in. And, and Yeah, sure. I mean, first of all, I'd just like to say I feel privileged to be part of such an interesting and educational conversation. So thank you so much again. I guess as we come to uh, the end of the conversation, just to conclude, if I could bring it to kind of a personal level and finish with asking you, as a general citizen of the world, how, how should we as Canadians or, or me as a Canadian citizen connect to foreign policy and how and why does it matter? Not to sort of hark back to critical thinking again, but I think one thing that has really stood out for me and especially in my work at Globesec where I'm engaging in sort of much more public diplomacy or at least English language based products uh, in Central and Eastern Europe where our audience is, you know, from Slovakia or the Czech Republic. I think the first thing is that people just need to be reading the news more. And it sounds it sounds very trivial, but I don't necessarily see a lot of young interns uh, or even first year university students come to interviews or work at our many conferences and sort of have a larger grasp of sort of the basics of how the world works. I think reading the news, looking things up, looking at documentaries are all important. But, you know, I'm I'm obviously very cognizant of the fact that it's like the news is competing with Instagram or TikTok. 
And that's why it's sort of important as the work that I'm trying to do, at least, is to provide a digestible product for people to understand big issues and at least think about it. We're not looking to convert everybody into you know, foreign policy savants, but I think reading the news is an important thing. Travel, which is, again, is a huge luxury for a lot of people, but sort of getting outside of this comfort zone and, and seeing different cultures, what connects you, what divides you a little bit is all very, very important. Yeah, I mean, I think those are, are two important ones, but it's really, you know, Kristen, from my perspective, the onus is on the government to engage more in public diplomacy and strategic communication. Because what I find when I come back to Canada, and maybe this is because I'm living in this IR security bubble in, in Slovakia and Vienna, is that Canadians really don't know what's at stake in the world. You know, even on our borders when it comes to the Arctic, you know, where Russia with, with climate change melting, you know, the Northwest Passage and trade lanes opening. Russia has taken a very aggressive stance on this in some cases. And it's, you know, Canada is both an Atlantic country. It's also on a Pacific. So Canada, as I said, like there's a lot of things going on that impact Canada. And it's always so surprising when I go back to sort of see that people aren't really cognizant of that. So it's a super tall order. But as I said, you know, people like you as educators at LCC, uh, helping to build out the strategic culture about just thinking about the issues and acknowledging them like you did during the Cold War uh, are two really important things and, and something that our team at Globeseg is really working on constantly. Well, I, I think it's very, very important for young people. Of course, young people, they like music, they like their friends, uh, they like to hang out. It's no, it's normal. But we want to make sure they're bright, that they actually have their eyes on the world that they're not living under a rock somewhere and that ultimately their lives, whatever they choose to do, are going to be impacted by the events in the world, which is all driven by by global forces. A sense of awareness is critical and that we embed that in their thinking as young people. And there's a lot of co-curriculars, as you know, aside from our, our courses where they can get into Model UN, they can be in debating. It's part of the, the IB curriculum that they're doing. But we want them to own it, right? As opposed to thinking it's an extra that's just somewhere else. And more and more, I think we're seeing our, our students do this. They're impressive. As you know, even when you were here, there was, we continue to have the annual Global Issues Conference and embracing global thinking. So I believe in our kids and their potential. And, and, and there will be a number of the kids in grade two and three you referred to before who will be on this podcast some years from now. The issues will be different. Shifts will have occurred. But the fact that they are young leaders taking ownership for it, I think, will be important. But it, Roger, it's been a, a real, real pleasure talking and knowing that you're in Europe, you're speaking with people about global challenges, and you've, I think, shared some good wisdom with us today on the current forces and future forces. And we want all of our students to be thinking in exactly that vein, uh, because it's, it's important for all the reasons you've outlined. Uh, well, Mr. Shannon and Kristen, as I said, I mean, I couldn't be happier uh, to join. And as I said, I mean, preparing sort of a couple of talking notes before for all of the listeners, you know, students or teachers or whatnot. I mean, still to this day with my parents, uh, you know, pushing 75, they still claim or they don't claim they know that, you know, me going to LCC was just the greatest investment they ever did. And it was a heavy sacrifice. So I just feel the need to sort of reiterate to both my parents how transformative it was to be able to go to LCC from grade one to 11. My best friends to this day for everybody listening, shout out to Stephen Paulino, Harkit Shada. You know, we still talk every day. And as I said, you know, being part of the LCC community is something that transcends age or if you were at Harper House or Beverage or whatnot. So I think that's something that's super important. Uh, and then just the last one for all of the listeners, which I just need to absolutely give a huge 
shout out and thank you to a couple of teachers who really just really, you know, struck me and made a, a huge impact on me. Monica Dumbrell, uh, Mr. Vlahogianis, Mr. Badian, who were really instrumental in sort of helping cultivate my interest in history, politics, language. I think Mrs. Dumbrell was the first Estonian I had ever met. And I remember going back and sort of reading up on the Baltics and, you know, the capital of Tallinn and whatnot. So those three people really hold a specific place. Uh, and then for all of this, the listeners who don't necessarily uh, excel at math and science, I absolutely have to give my last shout out to Mr. Neil for getting me through 436 math and uh, Mr. Scheffler for getting me through uh, science, uh, physics and chemistry. So on that note, LCC, uh, I miss you. You guys look like you're doing great and always open for meetings and uh, fun conversations here in the old world. Amazing. So Roger, all those teachers have planted great seeds. It's great to see what's grown in, in you and in, in all of our students. This is this is what teachers do, and, and, and I'm very proud of our team. So thank you again. Congratulations for all of the good work that you are doing, and we look forward to having a conversation perhaps in the future, maybe having you on campus at one of our Global Issues conferences. All right. Well, non nobis solemn, folks. Thanks for listening to We Are LCC. For more, go to lcc.ca slash podcast. And remember to hit subscribe or follow on your podcast app so you never miss an episode. I'm Matt Kundal, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.